0: Hello and welcome to the Up Became podcast. My name is Simon Osmo, and I'm a former UK police detective turned entrepreneur and mindset coach. And on this podcast, I talk with impactful individuals from around the world who have navigated a life pivot, found themselves for a self discovery to find that thing that we've all been looking for, a happy and fulfilled life. So the excuses are over, my friend. It's time to change our thinking so that we can change our lives and come join me as we dive into this week's conversation to learn how they became who they became welcome to the whole became podcast I'm Simon Osimo and my guest today is Joe Foster the co-founder of a sports shoe brand Reebok now I cannot tell you what an honor this was to have this conversation with him as a kid growing up in England I remember wearing his tennis shoes and I still remember my good friend Damien would tuck his jeans into his socks off his crisp Reebok classics as we stood outside the corner shop so to spend a time with the founder of the company was an incredible honor for me and if the public information is true Joe sold the company for around three billion pounds to the sports Giants adidas in the mid-2000s but his story doesn't start there there were times when Joe had self-doubt finances were so low that he was sleeping on his factory floor and lots of his success came through his vision and creativity as an entrepreneur. So if you've got dreams of starting your own business or you're in one, I cannot think of a better mentor to spend the next 45 minutes with listening to this conversation. But before we get into the tour today, head over to the show notes, click the link and download my free guide on mastering your mindset to help your life and business. It's a great guide to help you get started living a more fulfilled and balanced life. Okay, so here is a this week's conversation with Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok. Well, Joe, it's really an honor for me to talk to you because as growing up as an Englishman now living in America, I can remember wearing Reebok tennis shoes, I guess as we call them here in America, or trainers. So to meet the person that sort of had involvement in the design and creation of a company, it's a real honor and uh, privilege for me. So thank you for joining me. Oh,
1: it is a pleasure, Simon. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those things a you know, long, long time ago when we started Reebok, <laughs> and we had no idea that we we're going to actually become a number one company. But, you know, we, what you keep going. In fact, we, we're talking, we're talking to some people in America now, and they're saying, well, what we lack about it is resilience. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's what we, we're pretty resilient. But uh, thank you for buying Reebok because it does help, you know.
0: <laughs> well, and I can remember a good friend of mine, I don't know if you remember this craze in the, must have been, well, I was born in 78, so it could have been in the, the 90s. Uh, a friend of mine, Damien, always used to tuck his jeans into his socks. He had like his diamond socks. And then they would show off his nice Reeboks. It became a bit of a fashion symbol in the 90s and stuff. So, yeah, I I remember it very well. Some some, some good times. Stood outside the, the corner shop of a Friday. Everyone had their crisp Reeboks on. So yeah, you um you you influenced the generation, Joe. That's for sure. Well,
1: probably a few generations because by by uh, by 1990, I'd sort of sat back and retired. So those sort of um, fashions probably after my time. We had a lot during my time. But you know, younger younger people take over companies. Younger people make those decisions. You know, you've got to stand, you've got to sort of step back. at A certain point when you put so much into a company, and you realize that uh, fashion and sport is for young people, and they have they have much different ideas. So things progress, and that's what happened with Reebok. And fortunately, I would say in the early '90s we were number one. I did, I left at the end of 1989, but we were the number one sports brand globally. So uh, we achieved something.
0: And I like that you, as any senior leader of your experience, you take a little bit less of the credit than what you deserve. I'm sure you're a bit more instrumental in decisions than what you're letting on there. But that shows your leadership style, so I, I like it. But I wanted to take my listeners back to a little bit as to how the company started. So what fascinated me about it, Joe was that your family had been in shoemaking for a long time and there was a dispute really between your uncle and the father and you had to sort of take the company in a different direction so I just wondered was it was it brave to sort of go against the family grain for, for so long?
1: I think the you know if you go back to my grandfather like you say we've been there for a long time he set he set his business up uh, in 1895 he was only 15 when he some people say he invented. Some people say he, he sort of developed running shoes. But 1895, so that's where the company go, goes back to. He died in 1933, and I wasn't born until 35. So I never knew my grandfather. But he had two sons, referred to, my uncle and my father. And unfortunately, they never got on. They just, for whatever reason, whilst my grandfather was ri- alive and my grandmother was alive, I kept them together. But Unfortunately, when you're at loggerheads, two people, they're sharing the uh, the ownership of a company, and that doesn't do a company any good. So all we could see is the company going down, down, down. Jeff and I, we did national service. National service was something that had to be done for many years after World War II. And we went away for two years. And you, you learn a little bit more when, when that happens. The family influences aren't there. You've got to look after yourself. You know, and so we're away. Jeff went into Germany, and he saw Adidas, he saw Puma. I didn't, but I still got a different view on life. And when we came back to the company and we looked at it, and we're trying to compare it and say, oh, where do we take this company from now? I we, we tried to get uncle and father to work together and understand that the company was dying. It was was fading away because they weren't looking after the company. So it took us, well, it didn't really take as much time to decide that we needed to leave, but we had to build up uh, our knowledge. We had to go to college uh, in the evenings and learn a lot more about making shoes than we, we knew about at uh, the uh, family business. And eventually we, we left, but we had to leave because the company was dying. My father, we would talk to him a lot, and all he would say, is, look, when, when I'm gone and when Bill's gone, that was my uncle, when, they, when, they, when we're gone, you can do what you like with this company. And I have to say, well, I'm sorry, Dad, but this company won't be here. We don't want you to go. We want you, you know, you've got plenty of life left yet. We don't want you to go, but this company will be gone. And indeed, after we left, only about two years after we left, the company did just die because there was nobody left to take it on. But, you know, Jeff and I were young. I was only, what, 25? Jeff, 27. So quite, quite young people. And I suppose our attitude to it was, what can go wrong? What? Well, yeah, we we've got to do this. What can go wrong? So I don't think we ever worried about actually leaving the family company. I think we're more worried about staying with the family company. So leaving it was a challenge. And like I say, you know, you're young. What can go wrong? Plenty went wrong.
0: And that's interesting you say that because there, there was a couple of things, and I've heard you share part of that before. And a couple of things always come to my mind as to, you know, what was the pressure in the first place to be within the family business, because some people have to follow in the family footsteps or if there's an existing business, sometimes there's an expectation that the next generation are going to follow. So I guess I'd like to come back there and say, was there any pressure on you? Or was it an always an assumption that you would enter the family business at some point in your life?
1: I think in a way, probably my father would have preferred me to be an accountant. <laughs> and uh, I did spend a Sometime in accountancy, looking and working with uh, a local accountant, they couldn't get my head around sitting looking at these numbers and just putting ticks against them. And there didn't seem to be any creativity in that. So that didn't really work for me. The other area I could have gone into was aerospace, which I suppose would have been interesting. The British aerospace, it was then called de Havilland. They used to make propellers. Propellers, of course, they went out of fashion when the jet engine came in, but. Uh, British Aerospace was uh, there in Bolton. And I I trained as an engineer. So I I could have gone into that. But uh, I guess without knowing it, I probably felt that going into the family business would give me more opportunity to be creative. Because I don't think, well, for many years, it would have taken me a long time to be creative in a British Aerospace. And uh, I would have probably had to uh, spend some time at a university and learning much more about engineering than I knew. So uh, I, I think probably going into the family business was my decision, um, purely and simply on the grounds of probably more opportunity.
0: I like that. And another thing that you said, which I've, again, I've heard you say before, and it's really resonated with me, particularly that conversation with your, with your dad. I think I'm a father to two boys, eight and 10. And I've got to admit, I've used that line before, you know. When you're in my house, it's sort of my rules, um, you know, or w- when you do these things yourself, you can sort of make your own decisions. And I guess, well, what did you learn about that conversation with your dad? When you're really seeing something, you feel, dad, this isn't quite right, but the company's going to struggle. But he's sort of really sent you, you know, some while I'm in charge, we were doing things my way. And it, it didn't seem to be that open dialogue. Is there anything that you took away from that, that you move forward in your own life or what you've created in, in sort of Reebok? I think I that think what
1: I took away from my problems with father is that uh, if you have a closed mind and you're running a company, you're at the top of a company, but you close your mind. You won't listen to people and you won't take on board. You, you won't accept other ideas, new ideas. I probably took that with me to think, well, you know, if we're going to build something successful, we have to listen. We have to learn. And every day is a school day. You're learning something all the time. and this is why I mentioned that there's, it takes a lot of people. So what you have to try and do, and again, something that for me, it was really acknowledging people, working with people, becoming the friends, not their boss. You know, you're not, you're not somebody who is, you might own the shares, you might own the company, but you want to share the idea, you want to share the excitement. So probably I took forward something more sharing than just being the man in charge. The man in charge takes the responsibility. But not necessarily does the man in charge you have to get orders. He hopes he's got the right people. And you know when you've got the right people, you know, those are the people that help you build your company and they have ideas. They come to you with ideas. It's wanting to be that. So probably my time with my father probably learned the fact that now you've got to be more open, you've got to develop that. Plus the fact father and uncle, there were five years between them and they fought. Jeff and I, as brothers, just like father and uncle, set up a business with 50-50 ownership. But we never fell out. We never, ever had an argument. Jeff loved the factory. He absolutely loved the factory. And making shoes, that was that was for him. I think if you've read my book, I think it starts off with the fact that I'm a lousy shoemaker. Well, probably not a lousy, but lousy at uh, wanting to make shoes. No, that wasn't it. It was I was more of a salesman. No probably not even a salesman, more of a thinker, more of a marketer, and thinking, where do we go from here? So we had different areas to look at. And if Jeff was just said, look, I'll look after the factory, you do the rest. So I got all the bits and pieces. I did designing, selling, marketing, traveling, all that I did. And it was great. As I say, we never fell out.
0: And it is how. work. A couple of quick things I want to pick up. One, I have read your book, and I want to try and trade it for a signed copy. So- I have to get one over to you, to you, Joe, for you to sign and send back to me here in the So I'm, I'm going to put on record there on my, my request. And so the other thing that I picked up on in your answer was about, you know, having businesses with friends and family can be sort of problematic. And I was really hearing, obviously, you and your brother had a 50-50, and there was an area that he was in control of. And then there's an area that you were in control of. I mean, what, what do you think makes, with your years of experience in business and life, what do you think it is that makes a partnership successful? Because quite often you hear of someone puts in more work than the other, the two friends start to argue, they go in a different direction. I mean, what what what's your sort of understanding as to why why could you make it happen? Perhaps others haven't.
1: Well, partnerships are quite dangerous, certainly when you're on a 50-50 sort of basis and nobody really has. A total control. Um, so, what what happened with Jeff and myself? You alluded to it. Uh, we we had different areas to work in. So we we did exactly just that. I'm sure that Jeff was probably really annoyed at some of the things I did, <laughs> and I probably did some. Well, I know I did some stupid things, but you know that's part of your learning curve. Um, Jeff never ever said you shouldn't do that. You should do it this way. He never came across with Wanted to change anything. or well, wanted to suggest even that I, I should do it this way or that way. And we, you know, I, I did make a n- number of decisions. I had to do really because in those days we didn't have, I mean, look at this beautiful thing now. we have zoom in. We'd be able to sit here, you're some 3,000 or more, 4,000 miles away. And when we just have the chat, we couldn't do that. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't even have mobile phones. When I was out in the car, whether it was selling or I was, Going meeting people, that was it. I had to make a decision. You know, I couldn't refer to anybody. I couldn't pick pick the phone up because it was difficult. Certainly, when it started going abroad and doing traveling to America and places like that, to try and phone back to the UK, not just time, but the fact that you had to book a call. We didn't have the web. We didn't have satellites, so we had to rely on the cables that went under the Atlantic. And of course, there was always a limit to how many people could use those cables. So. You had to wait for a call. So much of the time, most of the time, in fact, it was just a matter of me and a handful of American Express traveler's checks going wherever and getting on a plane. I, and I sometimes think today, I, I wonder, how did you do that? You know, I think I couldn't do it today. <laughs> well, wow. In fact, uh, when we travel now, two of us have to travel because Julie has to look after me all all the time now. And uh, But in those days, it was just jump on a plane and go, and, and hopefully uh, you found your way back home again. So. I had my area, and I worked in that area. And I guess Jeff's philosophy was: look, if we're continuing to grow, we're making some money, and our business is developing, then it's okay. We did, if you have read the book, of course, we did. Uh, we did run into numerous uh, obstacles, but you know, it, it's all a matter of you look at those obstacles and you think, oh, okay, then what, well, can we make something out of this? And it was, it was all the fact that. Yeah, how can we turn a problem into an advantage? What can we do? Right? And so those challenges were, were always good, and they usually fell on me. It was usually a matter of what am I going to do? job So you try and work your way around it, and changing the name, changing the uh, silhouette of the uh, of our brand, and and of course the eleven years it took to get into America. This is where we get the resilience from. It's it's either that or it's stupidity. I'm not quite sure which it is, but uh, <laughs> we will do it. <laughs>
0: And when I hear you talk, uh, you, you touched on this earlier, but I hear a lot of imagination, you know, creativity. How important is that to being an entrepreneur? Because in today's world, you know, entrepreneurship has changed, but it used to be someone in an office with a big team and staff. And, and now uh, you can have a solo entrepreneur where they're running a multi-million dollar business from their from their bedroom with a, with a laptop. But I guess the traits are most probably the same. But how important is that creativity and imagination to the success of an entrepreneur?
1: You have to have imagination. You've got to be positive. These are the things that, uh, and, and you've got to work with people. You, you've got to be, you know, there's a slight differentiation between being a friend and being friendly. You're friendly towards people. You want to encourage people. And you, know, and you just have to do that. You have to be very true to what you're, what you're doing. And, you know, if you say you're going to do something, you do it or have a very good explanation why you're not able to do it, and that is communication. Communication is so important within your company. Communicate with people and you grow. Allow people to talk. Allow people to work with you. Yeah, this is the thing that helps you grow in a company. So being an entrepreneur, as you say, today we have so many tools that we can, which people can use, and it's, and it's incredible to have those tools. And uh, I don't know what it would have been like had we had computers and we, we had this COVID. COVID has brought this way of uh, communicating forward by ten years. It really has. You know, we I think without COVID, we'd probably still be doing the travelling. This this would have been growing, but not the way it has grown now. Which, you know, people have been pushed go and work from home, and they found out they don't need two hours of travel to backwards and forwards to work. They found out that probably they can do the, a day's work in two hours, and the rest of it has usually been probably. Uh, Talking, Coffee.
0: chatting, yeah, yeah, Ch- chatting and those photocopier conversations. Yeah, that is, that is important,
1: and I think you know, but you don't need you don't need to do that five days a week. Maybe one or two days you go to the office and you you exchange views, ideas, you network. You know, those things are still important. But the daily job, you can probably do it in two hours' at home. and then you've got the rest with the family. So I think this is now a trend. This is what what is happening. Um, back in my day, you you. You had to clock on. You had to come on and you'd got to put it in. A, you arrived at 8 o'clock in the morning and that was it. And I didn't do that, but the workers did. <laughs> and then they had to clock out at, at uh, 5 o'clock when, you know, to go home.
0: A 16 year old working at Tesco is my first job I can remember doing. That happened to to put your card in the machine to, to clock and go out. So I mean, it's not not that long ago. A lot of that stuff has changed, Joe. And it, but it's interesting as you talk as well because there's with entrepreneurship or with companies we often look at them the status to what we are. And I know that you know it was sold to to Adidas. I think it was in 2006 or 2005, 2006. 2005, but,
1: yes, yeah.
0: 2005, you know for. 3 billion or 3.8 billion I think I found online or whatever it was but you look at the end result but you don't appreciate the hard work it took to get there because I read within the book you know there's times when you were sort of almost living and sleeping in the factory to to make end make ends meet so maybe you sort of tell us about the journey when things were coming getting so tight you might probably challenge yourself thinking can we make this work here we're struggling to to pay bills what was that? Out of your life, your this life is a, like
1: this, was a very early time when we just left the family business and we set up uh, our own uh, small business, which we then called Mercury Sports Footwear. And we set up that in a small, I say small, it was a rather large building. It was an, ex, an old brewery and uh, it wasn't a very good building, not very safe. And but you know, as I said, we were young, this was an adventure, and I think you know, we probably treated it more an adventure as against the challenge to be successful. I think the, the adventure was, we were our own bosses. We, we were in charge. We didn't have to look at what was going on at uh, the parent company, how, how, how bad they were looking, how they didn't look to the future. It was always a day-to-day. They go in, they do the work, they leave, and that was it. There was nothing. We, we, could, we could make decisions. You know, we, we could say, where do we need to go? How do we design new shoes? You know, So that was the excitement. The fact that we were living in probably a fairly uh, an old brewery, obviously wasn't the ideal place. A bit run down, difficult to decorate and make it look beautiful. Uh, and I suppose that um, both Jeff and I, who had wives, I suppose it was the wives who maybe felt a little bit sort of deprived of uh, what they'd been used to, <laughs> you know, a and, and nice home and all the rest of it. But uh, they didn't. Uh, they didn't. I, I don't think they worried too much because again, we were all young and. The challenges were there, and you know, we, we could enjoy ourselves. We were nearly in the center of a town, so we could go out and we could do whatever we wanted. Not that we went out that much. And like you say, we were living, eating, sleeping, on the job, as it were. But again, if we ever felt that that was a bit of a problem, it didn't really seem to affect us. I think we did that for maybe two, three years. And then we uh, we'd made enough money to buy houses and so
0: we, you, can, we, you cannot be sleeping in a factory after and, and so i guess you know some people might listen to this and they could be an entrepreneur they could have a business or they could have an idea and they're struggling they're grinding they're, they're working hard i mean to hear you you know to, to sell a company sold for 3.8 billion whatever it was you know but going back to the beginning you're you just said you were you know in a living in a sort of an old brewery or factory for sort of two to three years is there anything that you've learned in your life that you could share to others as to, you know, when, when do you know to keep going and when do you know to say enough is enough? But I think we need to have a new idea because sometimes that victory and defeat, there's only that very slim margin, isn't there? And some people might succeed if only they kept going. And it's our human nature to sort of to back away and retreat because it gets too comfortable, it gets sort of uncomfortable and gets too difficult. Um, what, what have you learned, Joe, there?
1: I learned that um, if you're an optimistic person um, and like challenges, that, that keeps you going. That is, that is the good thing about it. You like the challenge. You, you can see challenges. You, you take them on. And, and whilst you're doing that, that's great. I don't say I became disillusioned. I didn't become a disillusioned with the company. But when the challenge had gone, when we were number one, or even just before we were number one, and I'm traveling the world, I'm probably going around the world three times a year, Doing a global visit to all the distributors that I had put on, I, I my first big distribution, of course, was the Americans, and I got Paul Feynman there to get be the distributor work on the American market because for me the American market was it was the showcase to the world. If it worked in America, it would work everywhere else. And after that, I travelled. I put on about thirty different distributions, globally, and it was a matter of travelling and keep doing that. But we became corporate. When you become corporate and you've got half a dozen lawyers, the same number of accountants, and a lot of people in between or manufacturing doing all, all the pieces, you know, and they're doing it well, and it just became a corporate job for me, and I became more of an ambassador. I'm arriving somewhere, being picked up by a limousine, uh, driving to the best hotel, and we're, we're dining at the best restaurants, and we're just talking about the company. The creativity is with everybody else, the young people coming in, the young, new ideas, marketing, you, know, you can only do so much, and it's stepping back all the time to allow more people. It becomes corporate, becomes so big that uh, I work myself out of a job. <laughs> it was like, yeah, step back, step back, let, let these younger people probably closer to the, uh, to the consumer than I am now. And it, it was at that point, I, you know, we did some great things because we, we had this uh, in Monte Carlo. We, we did the pro-celebrity tennis, uh, which was uh, Princess Grace's foundation. And, uh, you know, I'm meeting Prince Rainier. You know, I'm going to the palace. I, I'm entertaining stars from Hollywood, you know, lots of them, and entertaining a lot of tennis, hosting that. In, it's fantastic. But you do stand there and you think, is this for real? You know, this can't last. You know There comes that time when I think, right, time now to slow down, step away. And so I stepped away. Not that not that I, I was ever able to stay away, but I, I stopped being involved on a day-to-day basis.
0: And one of the things I heard there was about sort of stepping back and reflecting and bringing in a sort of a wider team that sometimes you can be very close to a problem to maybe not see the solution you've got to bring other, other people's strengths in. And I know, I can't remember if I read this about you online, Joe, or in your book. I feel like this was in your book, not 100%, I'm sure, but I think you said that you know, Reebok became your first love, and it has to be your first love. So I guess you know, is there success without sacrifice? Is it possible?
1: Well, maybe, but you know, I think unless it, unless it is your first love, you're missing something. And in business, whether it was in my day or if it's today, you have to be 100% alert and aware of your business. You have to have that connectivity. You, you need to be there. And I don't think you enjoy it unless you're in love with it. I don't think you can sort of have a business and be successful, just pick it up and put it down. And then we're talking about the growth years, those years when you're starting and it's really that challenge to climb that mountain. When you get to the top, maybe you can step back a bit. Maybe you can just become the, uh, the founder and, uh, and wave and just say hello. But uh, I think you have to be in love. And this, of course, is a challenge because if you have a family, you know, you've got the love for your family. But, and you've got to try and bring them together. I think it took some time for that. But I, I think my wife enjoyed the pro-celebrity years. Those, those were great because she could meet a lot of people. You know? And, uh, and the, these were A-listers like Sean Connery and Roger Moore. She had a photograph taken between them, just sitting between. You know, that is like, well, great. <laughs> so, yes, it's, uh, it's something you, you have to love. And uh, if you don't love it, it shows. I think it also shows if
0: you love it. Isn't it? Yeah, I, I'd agree. I mean, the, the passion that you see in people, I mean, even, I mean, you're 86 now, Joe, right? I mean, you, you still talk with the passion like these things are yesterday, but, you know, you've, uh, the shoemaker is is still inside of you. And I guess another question that came to my head, I just love to, because of your experience, you just have to get your wisdom. What about a lot of, in modern day entrepreneurship, when when there can be various different companies or different programs, even myself, one of the things, but I feel what I do in my entrepreneurial journey is I spread myself too thin across ideas. I mean, Reebok started as a shoe brand, and then you launched out. I mean, what do you, what would you say to a young entrepreneur that's got three or four ideas? Would you say keep pursuing those? Or would you say, Simon, get one idea, be successful, and then move on? What would you say to us there?
1: Well, it's, it's quite funny, really. you should ask that question to get only today I'm going to Zoom with doing a bit of mentoring with, with these people. And, uh, but they've got two brilliant ideas, <laughs> and, and that's a nice position to be in, Joe. Having two, you know? yeah, and, and one is really working so well, and the other one is to do with uh, footwear. But one one is to do with uh, automotives, and uh, very much a so, uh, cutting edge you know, on the science of it, and that's going really, really well, really busy. And this other side is really interesting, the footwear side, really interesting. But yeah, we're talking, and they're saying. You know, can can I help? And yes, we're we're going to help for a bit. But basically, he's got to put his energy now in this uh, automotive uh, business because it's really requiring his uh, his knowledge, his engineering skills, and he's he's got to travel. You know, he's got the money to do it now. He's coming in, and the the backing is uh So yes, when you talk about um, someone with good ideas and they're in different spheres. I think you have to uh, concentrate very much on the one which is the best one, the one and the one probably you're more in love with, and I think this guy we're talking to today is more in love with his automotive idea. But his engineer, or his uh, his inventive mind can't get away from the footwear side. His inventive mind, you know, so he, can, he has these ideas. So we're, we're we're looking after a few of those now, and uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do to first of all handle. Where he's got to, and then park it, park that business for a while, whilst he really sorts out his other business and gets that more to a position where other people can take some of the jobs he's got to do. Uh, Because whether whether one say he's a businessman or more of an inventor and an engineer, and I think he is more an inventor and an engineer than a businessman. He likes the business and he's got a good business sense, but I I think he loves the inventiveness that. that's in his mind. So it's good if he can do what he's doing on one and park it. So that's what I would do, you know, if you've got more than one good idea and he has, you've got to work on the best one and try and park the other one a little bit or even get some people interested. But, uh, you know, I I do think this man will be very successful at both of the things that he's doing now, but he's going to have to park one. So anybody who really, to really be successful, you have to concentrate on the one that... uh, the one you you're best at, or the one you're in love with. Yeah, I think this is because you'll succeed there.
0: I like that. It's sound advice, and I know it's going to resonate and, and help a lot of people because there can be too many distractions and too many directions. So, staying focused and and strategic is key. And I want to talk to you about, you know, one of the things—the sort of vision, the imagination. I know that you know part of your early success came through your marketing vision when you grabbed onto the aerobics sort of craze, where we Jane Fonda. Maybe that was the first sort of introduction of maybe like affiliate marketing or sort of working with a brand, a sort of brand ambassador and stuff like that. I mean, maybe tell us a little bit about how you sort of saw that in the market and then started to develop those sort of brand ambassadors. Would you call them that, Joe, or then what you would you would say in today's term?
1: Well, you know, the company was uh, fairly new on the American market. We're very good as, as a running company. And what Paul Feynman did when he, he set up the company over there, he you know, said, well, here you are. You've got, you've got three five-star shoes. Now, great. And we knew America, once you get to America, you can you sell the product because there's so, many, some, with so much disposable income. So many people were out running in those days. Running was really booming very fast. So the market was there. And uh, it was down in uh, Los Angeles at um, one of our – they call them tech reps. A tech rep is not somebody who goes out to sell the shoes. He goes out to the stores, meets the store salespeople, and tells them all about the shoe, all the good points, in just what, how they should sell it. So, so, uh, and he—it uh, was his wife. His wife was going to aerobic classes, and Arnold, Arnold Martinez, the guy, and he, Arnold was saying to Frankie, hey, "What are these aerobic classes?" And she said, "Oh, hey, we're exercising to music. Oh, can I come down?" So he went to the next class issue with it. And he saw the instructor in a pair of sneakers, half of class in sneakers, and the other half, no shoes at all. And so, you know, this is about building a team. If you have enough people out there, enough people will see opportunities. You can't see them all yourself. Accepting the opportunity is something else. Because uh, Arnold had this wonderful thought, let's make this nice cushioned shoe out of blood leather. And he went up to Boston, he's down in Los Angeles, He took the red eye to Boston, and uh, he talked to Paul Feynman. And Paul Feynman said, Arnold, we're a running company, and we're doing very nicely. Why do we want to make dancing shoes? And Arnold stuck with it, and he actually went to the back door, and he had a word with Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was our production man, and um, he just wanted, well, he wanted 200 pairs of shoes. He said that I can really uh, do something with 200 pairs of shoes he got his 200 pairs of shoes made specifically to his it uh, and took them back down to Los Angeles, gave them to the instructors and some of the girls around there. And, you know, and this this is where you, you, I know you make your luck, but, you know, this is where having, okay, working hard at these things, but luck is there if you can see it. A lot of people don't see the luck, but Arnold, Arnold who's there, he saw it, and... Uh, and he sort of created this uh, this demand, and this is why Jane Fonda, you know, all of a sudden it's growing. but It's only growing in Los Angeles. We don't know about it in the rest of the world. And Jane Fonda bought her and used it in her uh, videos. And then it, I mean that was it. All of a sudden, we were a young company. We we were known only to the running community, and we we were not as big as Adidas, not as big as Nike, or even New Balance in those days. The so, colony. Brooks, all these people were there on the running market. and We were a small company on the running market comparatively. I think we were, at that time, we were at $9 million. We are a $9 million company. Yeah, it was not bad, $9 million, but it's not big. And we are going back to the uh, 1980s. But uh, everybody viewed Nike and Adidas as male and as uh, sweaty. All of a sudden, we became a woman's company. And it was that. Understanding that we were now a woman's company, the women loved this nice white shoe with a union jack, this nice little spot of color and so soft and made especially for them, we only made it in women's sizes. That was the marketing and that it just went tremendous. from from nine million uh, the next year worth thirty million, and then the year after sixty million then ninety million, then three hundred million, and then nine hundred million. That was the growth. And that's because this real piece of good fortune, good opportunism, seeing that, this is what grew that company. And it's, you know, many companies. I think Rebot would have become a billion dollar company, but over a longer period. Over a much like just as a running company. We would have expanded. But this was explosion.
0: And it's interesting. I hear when you said about I can't remember the gentleman's name about the sort of lack of imagination or, or as in we're just a running company and the sort of initial answer was, was sort of no. And again, it's similar to how we started a conversation about your bringing an idea to your sort of dad and your dad saying, well, you know, when you're in charge, you, you can sort of do that. I mean, is there a difference Joe between vision and imagination or are they so intertwined as a sort of, a?
1: they're, they're much the same, aren't they? You know, having the vision and the creativity, these, these things, imagination, imagination, uh, it gets you into different realms. It gets you thoughts. You know, you think, Oh, we're not doing bad, you know, how big do we need to be? Well, you can imagine yourself being big. You can, you can imagine yourself being the number one. And that's always good because that imagination just suddenly you you find something and it happens. And you you've got to have that um the belief. Yeah. You have that belief. And if you've got that belief, well why why not? You know, some you want to be number one? Uh, why not? Uh, people ask me now, you know, the the brand has been bought by uh, ABG, and they have imagination. They're being creative, and uh, people like yourself. So now that's been bought. What um, what would you do with Reebok now? And and I'd say I would aim to be number one. Where do you start? You start in America. It depends if your imagination and if your if your ambition stops somewhere, then you can expect the company will stop there. If your ambition and your imagination can take you anywhere to the biggest to the best then you have a chance to be that and and it's always that always keeps you young interested because it's a journey you know and where does the journey end well you know it ends when you want it to end because you know your imagination will keep you going for as long as you want to keep going for me as i say i was 50 55 at that time and yes brilliant but you know. It wasn't the same company for me. We we'd achieved more or less what I wanted to achieve because I love the challenge. And and I knew though that this company can achieve more, but it needs more people. Yeah. You know, people who can think.
0: And that's what I was gonna ask you. Actually, I wanted to talk about, you know, letting go of something that you created. So in two thousand and five, I think I just found this on public information, it was sold for three point eight billion to to Adidas. So something that you took from an idea, you know, imagination, you had the vision to create it and, and build this large organization. Um, you know, it becomes an international brand. You know, you and your wife have spent time, you know, living in a, a brewery for sort of two or three years where you can buy a house you know, it has been all this hardship and you get a success. I mean, what was it like to let go uh, or sort of release control and, and I know that you're sort of, sort of an ambassador in some way, sort of, you know, advisor and, and still within the brand, but to fully let someone else take the reins of something that you really created and crafted, I mean, what does that look like, Joe?
1: Well, for me, it was, it was always about Reebok. Um, not many people know of Joe Foster. You know, I've written a book and that, is, that has helped sort of uh, people to think, well, who's Joe Foster? Okay, so I'm founder of Reebok. But it was always about the company, not about selling Joe Foster. It was all about Reebok. To me, you know, if you divert away from, from the past, you can get lost. And so it was always about Reebok. So building Reebok wasn't necessarily building success for Joe Foster. It was necessary to say, what's the best for the brand? And the best for the brand was to let other people in. You know, we, we had the opportunity for more money. Today, you can, you can borrow money much easier than, than we could back in the 1980s. You know, money will follow it. Money will help these days because the whole sports business has continued to grow. We never had a recession. The, the, the only time when really sales have, uh, have not been much, should be, had been now through COVID. Otherwise, we never had a recession. So it was always a matter of can Reebok achieve something bigger and better? And to achieve something bigger and better, you have to let more people in. And people need ownership, uh, and so for me, you can be the CEO of the biggest company in the world, but they can replace you. You can't replace a founder. So for me, it was well, that's okay. I'm the founder, and wherever Reebok goes, I'll be with it. That's great. But you know, give it the opportunities. I I would not. I probably would not have sold it to Adidas, but it wasn't in my control at that time. And uh, and I think. Most Adidas have done some good things. They have. There's been things that uh, have stopped Reebok moving in directions they could have moved in. Adidas wanted Reebok to be a fitness company, and they would be the uh, performance company. And, okay, that works for performance. But, unfortunately, it's really finding the energy to put into just being a fitness company. You know, Reebok were always a sports company, performance driven. You know, we were in a lot of sports. Uh, but I just wanted it to just be team sport. They would be the team sports. Reebok would be fitness. And that didn't do the Reebok brand any good. However, I don't think it's done it any harm. It's put down sales. But, you know, we grew uh, a company where I, I think 60% of all Americans had bought a pair of Reebok. Now that's a big number. And so there's, there's a lot of love right there. There's a lot of people who remember. And, you know, the pump. once... When, when Reebok took the pump or, or took that uh, technology and put it in, nice, simple technology, but it was different. And everybody remembers that. So there's a lot of people there who remember the brand, who, uh, who want the brand to succeed again. and Nobody more than Shaquille O'Neal. Shaq is a big lover of Reebok. And now, now he's part of the uh, ABG group that now owned the brand. That's why I think it's now... Ready again, set again,
0: and become an even greater company. Yeah. And there's some great things that you said in there about the letting go. I want to sort of reinforce, you know, it's bigger than me uh, and you have to let people in. There were two key points there it's bigger than me and not got to let people in. And I did do some reading about the, you know, when Adidas sold the company, you know, most of the open source research that I found said really it was a bit of a, a failure and it said it had an identity crisis under Adidas. And I guess. Maybe for you as a founder, I was trying to imagine what would that feel like? Is it a bit like having a child when you see the child drifting off track and you, you want to correct them, but you can't because they're, they're living their own life? I mean, was, was it tough to see? You obviously mentioned that you didn't feel like selling to Adidas was the right thing. The news says they had an identity crisis, as you really explained. I mean, was it hard to hard to witness knowing that you couldn't control it?
1: Well, the thing is that uh, when Paul Feynman decided, and the shareholders, Decides a Reebok had plateaued. You know, Reebok had been growing, 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 and then plateaued at uh, four to five billion, well, four billion dollars. And uh, I think the problem there is that Paul couldn't find the right person to take over. This is a very important thing. You know, you got to have somebody at the top who can be liked and and will sort of help the, the company continue to grow. Has that mentality? And um, Paul Feynman couldn't find that man. So. It was a matter of, I think, uh, Paul Feynman met up with uh, Herbert Heiner, who was then running Adidas, and they met up. And the idea was that Reebok and Adidas together, they combined, they would be as big as Nike, and they would take over. Now, that was the sort of thinking. However, I don't think that ever really was, I don't think we were ever really able to work on that one and make it happen. And put in Reebok here and put in... They are staying with Adidas, and Adidas, they were the big boys, so they would spend more money building Adidas. You can't blame Adidas because that was they paid a lot of money. And when you pay a lot of money, you're entitled to do what you want. But it didn't do Reebok any good. So I think now, when you're saying now that uh, it's now under ABG, it's still early days, but they're talking the right language. What you hear is they want to grow the business. They want it to stand alone. You know, and they've done some very nice uh, licensing deals. So it will be different. But a different approach doesn't mean to say it's not going to be the right approach. It could well be. This could be the approach that takes uh, Reebok back to number one. I think already Jamie Slater, I think he's called the CEO, um, he's already expecting $5 billion in revenue in this year. Well, from $1.5 billion And and I know Reebok have already started to grow again, but five billion—that's a—that's a a big jump. And then he expects to get to ten billion in five years. Well, I am going to say they're going to go bigger. They're going to really—that's good
0: imagination and vision, as you mentioned earlier, Joe. Well, to end on these two final questions, so the first one is: as you look back on your life, what is the biggest self-discovery that you found about yourself?
1: Self-discovery. Ah. I suppose when really, I discover that uh, I'm an optimist, I, uh, I I like to see things happen. And, uh, you know, even when things go a bit difficult and I've had some difficult times in in my life, some difficult experiences, you've got to look beyond them. You know, I lost my brother before, just, just when we got into America, before the successes, you know, and, and he died. That uh, and, But you've, you've got to move on. It's so important to move on and because there's nothing you can do. You know, people say, would you like to change something? Oh, yeah, I'd like to change it, but it's impossible for me to change my brother dying and my daughter dying. You know, these things you can't change. And in the business, we became number one. And so I couldn't change the business. And so, yes, being an optimist and being being willing to accept people, being willing to listen, you know, I, I think I've learned in life that, that accepting other people, you know, you, you can meet some people and it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, you say so. because. What you don't want, you want good people, but you don't want egos. And egos can spoil the company. And there have been a few. You're bound to have some egos come into the company. But, you know, rightfully you, you ask them to move on because the company is the company and it's got to be the number one. That's got to be it. We don't want any bigger egos. But in some ways, they, they help, they drive. So I, I think what you learn to do is to share. Share your feelings, your ideas and And listen to people, and you know don't be a boss, just you know you have to be owning the most shares in the company you have to be you have to have a role which you know allows growth so it, it's really taking people it's like to say if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room you know we've all heard that, and it's true you, know, you need other people, other people are much smarter than you are in many different ways, and so listening to people allowing other people to grow. You know, if you learn anything in life, it's uh, it's good because you end up with a lot of friends.
0: Oh, I like it very, very. A, a lot of depth to that answer, for sure. Some some nuggets in I'm going to have to go back and, and listen to uh, yeah, again. And the second question is then, so as someone who's been involved in a company which has been sold for you know billions of, of pounds, as people, we always set ourselves big goals, either to become a millionaire, start a company, When you're at the proverbial top of that mountain that you've been at, sort of financial and sort of stature of the celebrities, is there anything you discovered about being at the top that might help other sort of young leaders?
1: I I don't know whether I ever consider that there's a top. I I consider that life goes on because if you're at the top, you're looking down. It's always looking up. It's always, you know, it's continuous. It's it's like you, you can't turn time back. Time will just move on and on. You can't stand it still. It will move on, and uh, and I think you have to have that attitude. Maybe you're not moving on as fast, <laughs> but so all I can say to anybody who, who wants to get up there is uh, enjoy it. Yeah, you know, enjoy it. Again, you know, to quote, "It's better to travel than arrive." <laughs> and I think in, in in this instance, if you think you've arrived, mm, you know, maybe that's not the right for me. It's not the right approach to say I've arrived. No, Reebok may have arrived. You know, the company. That, you know, there's still there's still much more to do, and I I would not be I use happy in the in, in a different sense. I would not be happy until Reebok is number one again. You know, and then where do we go? So it's a challenge, and I think if you uh, if you want to continue enjoying life, this is probably why I retired out of Reebok at that time because the challenge had gone. You know, it was a matter of yes, but so it's it's nice to stand back and say, "Go on, Reebok, you know, keep going. You you keep going. I'm going to follow you." So when do you do you arrive at the top? I don't know what that means really. I, you know, I, I I tend to think that uh, we're we're doing what we're doing, and if we're successful, great. You know, and you've just got to keep on it. Your ambition has to be there, and uh, it's the optimism. I meet people sometimes, and they talk about things, and you think, well, yeah, things are not perfect today. Yeah, COVID's been a, a disaster, but you know, a lot of people are finding a different way with COVID. They're finding They can work from home. They've got a different opportunity. So I think if if opportunities and uh, vision failed, I I think then I would uh, probably give up. But there's a lot of vision. There's a lot of opportunities. Where are we going to go? So what I'd say to everybody is just keep climbing. Just keep climbing. That mountain isn't over. It's still there.
0: Very wise words. Well, Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok and author of The Shoemaker, The Untold Story of the British Family Firm that became a global brand, It's been an honor and a privilege for me to talk to you today. I really enjoyed listening to you share some of your life wisdom. There's so many things. I'm going to have to go back to this now, make some notes to implement in my own life. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast. To help spread this inspiring story, be sure to share it with your friends, hit the like button, and of course, subscribe to our channel so you won't miss out on any future episodes. We'd also love to hear how this story impacted you, so leave us a comment on whatever platform you're watching us from. To learn more about this episode, our guests, or Simon, head over to Simon Osimo slash podcast and sign up to receive the latest information delivered straight to your inbox. Once again, thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast.